The Choose Love movement offers no-cost solutions that keep our kids safe, providing them with the skills and tools they need to flourish. Join us in our mission to create the world we want to live in, one that's connected and compassionate. Check us out at chooselovemovement.org. Together, we can choose love. Hey, everybody. My name is Scarlett Lewis. I'm the founder of the Choose Love Movement. Welcome to the Choose Love Podcast, where we have incredible conversations. And today you're going to get a lot of vicarious post-traumatic growth through my dear friend, Linda Couch's story. Linda, so nice to have you. I just want to give you a hug. Good to have you here with me. Yes. Visiting. Well, I'm visiting. I was just speaking at a nationwide conference for educators. And whenever I'm in town, I stop by Linda's. And Linda is a fascinating person, but she's been also just this incredible inspiration to me uh, and, and motivation to be a better person, have a better mindset and a better attitude mm-hmm. because your attitude is always so amazing. And so I wanted to share her story and I've wanted to share her story for a long time with you. And so we just, it's rainy out today. (laughs) There was nothing else to do. So I said, today's the day because you are going to be amazed at her story and you're going to take away so many things for your own life. She is such an incredible person. And uh, so, so I will say that our story started in Fayetteville, Arkansas, when I was working uh, as an investment, actually, I was uh, doing bond trading then. Mm-hmm. Um, and for Llama Company, Alice Walton's uh, investment banking firm, Alice is the daughter of Sam Walton. So that was a really amazing experience. I was back in my hometown of Fayetteville, which I love, and on the trading desk, looking over all by salespeople and in walks this new hire. And uh, so she's. Huh walking around, um, being led by my father over to my father's municipal arbitrage office. And I thought, hmm, she looks fun (laughs) and maybe like a friend. And this was what, 35 years ago? Oh my gosh, a long time. I don't even know what year that was. 1994? Okay. Something like that. So uh, I introduced myself to you at work. You were our new compliance officer. Right. And so uh, invited you to my art class. Right. Which I always wanted to do. But I mean, I just remember going back to that day and walking in. I had moved there from Chicago. So I remember thinking to myself, what have I got myself into? I had no (laughs) idea where I was or what, you know, I didn't really know a lot about what was going on other than I knew what I was going there to do. So you um, you moved to a new place. You didn't know anyone. No, right. And you so. were a single mom, right? And I brought my little boy, who was four at the time. He turned five a month later and had a big party with all these friends. That yeah. was fun. Um, so we ended up just working there at the firm together at Llama Company. And I saw Scarlett, and she was like, "Oh," and I thought to myself too, "That's probably a friend." I hope so. Mm, <laughs> I know. Yeah, we didn't know. Um, but I was just nervous because I didn't know anybody. So we just started working, I guess, and talking and just became close friends. And I had always wanted to do art. I always wanted to paint. And I've always set something up in my house. And I have never painted anything in my life. And I didn't really have any talent that I thought of. So anyway, when Scarlett said she painted and invited me to go to class, I was thrilled. So we went to class together soon, I guess. I guess it was very quickly. It was very quickly. Yeah. I think that's the first thing I invited you to do. Right. So we went. Yeah. And this is Jane Weir Davidian, who still lives in Fayetteville, and she's actually still our art instructor. Right. And we have orchestrated getting together every other year. Every every year. Every year. the past couple years. Yeah. To paint and to to just be together and talk. And it's absolutely been awesome. Um, So I remember you were a single mom, and I was in my early 20s and just kind of really having a good time. Right. <laughs> right. And I was jealous because I had to be a mom. And right. Right. And I didn't really understand that. Um, but I do know that I loved Blake and I have one of my favorite stories. Um, we, so I lived on Lewis Avenue, which was in a development that my grandfather actually uh, helped start Lewis Avenue, my last name. And so uh, Linda actually bought a house on Lewis Avenue. Yeah. I bought the house first and then you came in after me. Oh, is that right? 
Because oh. I lived there, and then you said you were looking at houses, and you came to my street. Oh, okay. and we realized that it was your grandfather. Who oh, right, the right. Okay, so, uh, so, and then we yeah. lived on the same street, right? Two houses down. Yeah, and I had a jeep with four wheel drive, and so on the uh, we there's a lot of hills in yes. Fayetteville, and I mean, my house was my driveway was a hill. Yours wasn't. No, it was a little bit. Yeah, it went down, which was. Never a good idea. And if you have a two-wheel drive, you can't get out. So, and then on the way to work, we had to go up that big hill. Right. So just kind of impossible. And so I would go down on the, the snowy days and pick up you and Blake. My son, Blake. And drive him to school and then go to uh, work. to work together. And uh, so this one morning, it's totally icy. And I drive down and Blake walks in front of the car. Whoop, Flips out on the ice all the way on his back. And he's just got, you know, he's this little kid with this snowsuit on and flips on his back and then gets up, you know, <laughs> the car. So cute. But um, so fast forward, you are moving away. And I'm so sad and I can't believe it to yeah. Atlanta. And why were you moving to Atlanta? Well, so how many years were we in Fayetteville? Like four years? Me? Is that five? Yeah. Okay. Seemed well. No, that. good point because I was only there for five years, so maybe four years. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I had a health condition, a heart. I had a heart disease, which was a genetic issue that all my family members were getting. So I was the first one to really get the whole deal. And my doctors diagnosed me, of course, and said I needed a heart transplant. But they had said that for years when I had Blake, I had heart failure. So this was five years later, and they said I needed to be located near a major hospital so I could get myself used to the area before I got the transplant. And I really didn't believe them. So I just kind of put it off because I felt okay, but it's, it's because I was so young. I mean, I was probably 30. We were playing tennis. Yeah. It was just active busy. and hiking and yeah, being but, a mom with a full-time job, single mom with a full-time job. Yeah. But they said it was because of my youth and I was, it was in good shape. So that kind of took over from my heart. So I didn't notice it until um, they told me it's time, like, time for what? So we ended up moving, you know, I got Blake and we just loaded up in a U-Haul van. My brother flew over. He lived in South Carolina and I, we drove to Georgia where my sister lived. So we ended up coming here to Georgia, which I am still at. So I, I actually love Georgia. So this was a good move, but, um, I came here to be close to Emory university. And my sister, unfortunately, my sister had the same heart disease I did because there's such a strong genetic factor. So when her name was Valerie, she got sick the year I got here and started getting worse and worse. So I was trying to help her through that. And take care of her. Place. Well, I was taking care of myself and Blake. And I actually came here so Valerie could help me with Blake. Cause I just, I knew I was going to have to go into the hospital at some point. I didn't know when. And um, then Valerie got so bad that she actually died waiting for her heart because her heart got so bad. She just, she just it basically gave up because it was just too much. She just couldn't handle it. And she had three boys and was divorced. So she, the boys came and lived with me. We just didn't know what else to do. And there was, the father's family, you know, couldn't take care of them or wouldn't. So now I had four boys. So four boys here. in the same house, single mom. You're moving now to a bigger house yeah. with a full-time job as a compliance officer right. in an investment bank, which is really a demanding job as well. Right. So I'd gotten the same job up here and it, uh, it was actually at an insurance company, which turned out great for me for my health insurance. So, um, you know, it was after Valerie passed and I had the boys and we had moved from my small two bedroom apartment into a big house, into another town. That was, that was so difficult. I don't know how I did that either. <laughs> but then I did go into the hospital and while I was in there, actually, well, you got, you got a little bit sicker and then it yes. turned out that you needed that, that this was the time you needed a heart transplant. Yeah. It was probably a year after my sister passed away that I realized that I was getting weaker. And I could tell because with heart failure, you can't lie flat because your lungs fill up with fluid so you can't breathe. You like start choking. And I'm so like 
forcible. I just kept pushing forward, pushing forward. So one morning I got up and I hadn't been sleeping at all because you just can't sleep. But I wasn't even thinking about that. I decided to sit up in a chair all night. But I got up, took the, all the boys to school. They all went to a different school. It was grade school, junior high and high school. So I got up, took them all to a different school and got on the road to go to the hospital. And I got into a car accident because I fell asleep driving, which is awful. And the kid I hit was so mad. It was a, like a teenager. And he got out of his car, came over yelling at me, and he was going to like beat me up. And I just, he kind of looked at me and realized that I was not in good shape. But I told him I was on my way to Emory. So he just kind of brushed me off and I went. So did the ambulance come to the accident? No, no. Oh. I got back in my car because oh. I woke up after I hit his car and drove myself to Emory. And as soon as I walked into the door, they just looked at me. I don't know. Maybe I was blue or something and just said, you're going to stay here until you we find a heart for you. Gosh. Like, oh my gosh. I guess I'm not going home. I said, but all my boys are at school. Yeah. I've, got, I've got stuff to do. They said, well, figure it out. So I got on the phone. I don't know if I had my computer, but I had um, a friend to go pick him up from school and take them, actually take them to the airport because we were all going to New Jersey the next day to go to my brother's for Christmas because it was December 19th. I oh my gosh, Linda. So I had all these flights booked. So they went ahead and got on the book, the plane because they wanted to go to Christmas. And I thought, well, that's perfect. I can be in here. And I thought naively, maybe I'll have my heart when they get back. <laughs> we'll be fine. Christmas present. Right. That didn't work. So they went, you know, to my brother's house. He actually lived in New Jersey then. He hadn't moved yet. So they went up there and, you know, they had a great time. It was all new and fun. But then I got out of the hospital. I got my heart on February 3rd of 2000. So it was 1999 when I went in. Wow. And you were, you were kind of tethered to your bed, really. You couldn't move very much and you had to do everything, manage four boys from the hospital. So you had to, I remember you had to move out of your big house. Yes. I actually called a moving company and had them come to my house and pack everything up. I had no idea who it was. I just picked something out of the phone book and they packed everything up and put it in a storage facility, you know, over where I was living. Cause I thought I need to go back where I was. Cause I knew people, you know, just neighbors and that was it. I didn't know how long I'd be in there. The doctors couldn't tell me. They said it could be a year. So anyway, waiting for a heart, waiting for a heart, but it turned out to only be three months. So I got my heart in February and then I came home on Valentine's day, which I thought was kind of nice. Um, so I came home, but I, I was not doing well just because it's a, it's a big surgery. So, you know, but again, I was young, so I think I healed faster. Um, but there was just so much stuff. I don't know if I don't want to get into all of the circumstances, but when you get a heart transplant, it affects every part of your body. So my kidneys stopped working. So I had to go on dialysis, which means every other day you have to go to a dialysis center and drain your blood and put it back in after they clean it. So um, I mean, that was a lot of work. So I didn't have the boys come back yet. I thought I need to do this. And where were they? At my brother's. Okay. They stayed there. They stayed there. Okay. All except for my son, Blake. He came back and um, he stayed with the neighbors. So he was right across the street from me. So that was nice. I could see him. He could run over. But he was kind of scared of me. You know, he, he wasn't used to seeing his mom weak. Yeah. So he just didn't know how to take that. So he just kind of stayed outside and played with the friends and slept over there. And they took him back and forth to school. Um, but then I got better. My kidneys bounced back somehow. Lots of prayer. So I think that's what did it. Yeah. And because God knew I had enough to handle without dealing with dialysis every other day. Right. So my kidneys were, came, came back and we basically just went on with life. You know, the kids got back in school. They came down, enrolled back in school. They moved back in with you, the three boys? Yes. Yeah. Well, not all three of them. You know, like we were sc scattering them around. Okay. One of them stayed with Blake. No, Blake stayed with me. One of the boys was with my brother. Anyway, they kept going back and forth. Mm -hmm. And um, and I went back. I, I started playing tennis again because I've always played tennis a lot. And there was a tennis court in our um, area where we lived. So I went back, you know, on the team too soon. So I'm back there playing tennis a lot because I felt fine. I felt good, which is weird so soon. And then after a while, I started get hurting 
getting pains in my chest. So and something was doctor. weird here, yeah. right? Sticking out or something? Yeah. Well, I, I was back at work too. And I'd be leaning over my desk and I'd think, ow, ow, that hurts. So I went into the doctor and they looked at my chest and all the wires that they clamped my chest with were breaking because of all the swinging for the tennis. And they've never had anybody oh. who had had a heart transplant that was so active. So right. they'd never seen that before. They had no idea what was going on. So then they looked and they started seeing all these wires popping out. So they just started pulling them out there in the waiting room, which was crazy. And I did go back in for a couple surgeries to remove all of the wires that were scattered all over my chest. And I guess the problem is they work themselves out eventually, but I did want it to poke me in the heart. Where? I don't know. Okay. So they just laughed <laughs> at me. They're like, no, Linda, just quit doing that. Quit but, playing tennis? Well, I didn't. Yeah. Weren't you on a transplant team? Well, the yeah. transplant Olympics? Yes. But that was like, they have one every year, they have one somewhere in the United States. So I would go to those and I played tennis for the Georgia Transplant foundation so that was fun and you won well i did but i think we only got second place in doubles or something oh, okay i don't know because it was just for transplant patients so it's not like i was a professional tennis player um but that was fun so i just stayed busy and of course working still full-time and so you maintained your full-time job throughout all of this well not for the three months i was in the hospital actually i took a whole year off just because i mean there was just too much going on were you on disability yes mm -hmm. Yeah, but then I got bored and I called, I ran into Reuben, which was Scarlett's boss in Fayetteville, Arkansas. He was working here in Atlanta. He was my boss in investment banking. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I, he, he actually became the superintendent of schools in Atlanta at first time, right? Yeah. He yeah. was really important here and I didn't even know he was here. Yeah. And he was working for the mayor of Atlanta. So he told me, he's like, come on down to my office. We've got a spot for you. I'm like, wow. So I ended up working for the mayor of Atlanta. Maynard Jackson, who was a great man, you know, just a very intelligent, nice man. And it was an investment banking firm called Jackson Securities. So that was fun. So I ended up working there with Ruben and Maynard for several years. And uh, well, I think I, I felt pretty good there. We traveled a lot. We kept up our painting classes, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, or once a year. And I think Blake would have to go to a relative or something and BJ while I was gone for the weekend, mm -hmm. or I think they went to Boy Scout camp one weekend. But anyway, um, we did that for about three years. And then I met the man I married, finally, somebody who fit the bill. So I met Russell, who is my husband currently. And uh, we got married. That was an interesting story to tell somebody. And I used to test boyfriends out about the whole heart transplant. Like, how are they going to take it? You know, are they yeah. going to walk away? Are they going to tell me, you know, that they don't have any interest in that or just not care? So some of them would be like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, what time is it? I got to go. Yeah. Huh. But not many. Honestly, it was really surprising. Or they just wouldn't think anything about it. Russell didn't think anything about it. Love was, that. Yeah. He was yeah. just like, oh, wow, you've been through a lot. And he was really looking for somebody that had a lot of character. And he thought, well, that that's a lot of character. If you Absolutely. can go through that. That's right. <laughs> and I, which, you know, we didn't really talk much, but he figured out eventually that, you know, it was a heart transplant. And I, I didn't, I never had any issues, you know, for the first 10 years. So it, it really didn't affect my life that much. Just to take some medicine and I was always healthy. So I just took care of myself and took my meds. Mm-hmm. And we were fine. I feel like I'm forgetting something. Well, you know, Russ had uh, two kids when right. he got married. Right. And uh, so a, a girl and a boy and mm -hmm. Garrett. Talk about Garrett. Yeah. Well, so when we got married, my son Blake was 13. Garrett was, well, Alex, his daughter, was 15. And Garrett was 17. So we had 13, 15, and 17-year-old. Mm -hmm. So That's a lot. Yeah, it was. But it was good because they all three, they were so close that they got along well. And um, especially Garrett and Blake, because they both needed each other. Blake was really anxious and nervous about a lot of things. You know, it was just genetic. That was from his father's side. And Garrett was had spina bifida. So he was always a little anxious and always felt like an outcast. And I think Blake felt like an ass outcast. So they really bonded and became, you know, true brothers, which is amazing because we both wanted that for our boys. 
They were best friends. Yeah. Yeah. I I just want to say really quickly, I remember hearing the story about the first time that Lake met Garrett and uh, they have a basketball hoop and both boys like basketball. And so Blake comes up, he sees Garrett in the wheelchair and he goes, do you have another one of those? (laughs) And Garrett's like, yeah, in the garage. So Blake runs over, gets into the wheelchair and they start playing basketball. Right. Wow. Yeah. And Blake was 6'3". So, I mean, he was plenty. I mean, he loved basketball. He played all the time. And Garrett did, too, on a wheelchair sports team. So, you know, it was really a tough game because they were, they were, you know, even in the wheelchair. So, anyway, they had fun doing that. Yeah, so, so close. And just to give everybody an idea of the kind of man that Russell is that you married, um, one year you asked for a special Christmas present. Oh, yeah. And that was to take my two boys and myself to Disney World. Now, I was a single mom. There's no way I could have ever afforded to right. take the boys to Disney World. And I knew what that was like. Being yeah. a single mom, you don't have extra money to do things. Right. So, you know, I think it would have been so easy just to write a check and send it up and say, have fun at Disney World, you know, it's a gift from us, so easy, right? But that's not the way Russ and Linda roll. They actually came with us. So we flew into Atlanta. You guys were there at the airport with a sign. Let's go to, you know, next stop Disney World, you know, and that was so beautiful. That was fun. It was really fun. Mm -hmm. And then we drove to Disney World from Atlanta and stayed in the hotel that, JT wanted, which was I think Danny Phantom or something with the with the slime the slime hotel slime Nickelodeon hotel. Nickelodeon hotel yeah. yeah that's right Nickelodeon hotel to get slimed and then uh, and then when it, and they were so excited because there was this big slime bucket and they couldn't wait to get slimed and then at the last minute Jesse was kind of tentative about getting slimed and he wanted somebody to walk up with him to get slimed and of course I'm like. I don't want to be slimed. I have no interest. So I remember Russ putting him on his shoulders, going up. So there's JT. Here's Russ with Jesse on his shoulders. They're all waiting. That bucket's tipping, 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 tipping. And then they get slimed. <laughs> that is wow. so fun. Wow. You know, just so incredible. What an incredible memory and incredible gift. Yeah, well, it, it is. And it was a gift for a lifetime because we all have that memory. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, that's just like that's how Russell is. It's true. I mean, you you had had lost the ability to sweat, and it's amazing how that helps your body so cool down, cool down, and regulate your temperature, your inner temperature. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't drink water. It was so hot wherever we were. It was like a hundred degrees. You couldn't drink water right. because you had so much fluid in you. Mm-hmm. So you would suck on ice chips. Like how miserable would that be? You're hot. You're really thirsty you can't drink water so i remember you just standing under the fountain and this cold water was washing over you and you were so happy (laughs) but the thing about linda is that you never complained and it was it was legitimate like you i've known you now for what 35 years through now we know at least one heart transplant as we go through you know this story and surviving cancer and being a single mom with blake and struggling and all of this you never once complained. It's like you just um, you just had this incredible mindset that I'm watching and I'm just in awe of. Well, and I think we both probably admired each other because at this time you had two little boys. And I mean, that's never easy. I mean, when you're by yourself. Yeah. So just going through all of that, you know, with trying to raise them alone and yeah. struggling with relationships. So right. it's it's hard. That just kind of is a, a constant mental wearing on you but you always have to look at the children and, and say what's the best thing for them yeah so i mean that's what we wanted to do and honestly i just wanted them to have fun and i wanted to have fun so going to a water park is fun so that's what we would do well we have that in common too yeah. i mean that was kind of the theme of our household have a lot of fun right i mean <laughs> that was perfect yeah um so where are we in martha's vineyard you know what i remember from that the only thing not the only thing that i remember but i remember hearing that song from Louis Armstrong in Some Wonderful Life and sitting on that porch up there in our rocking chairs, you know, and I had a big hat on and I thought, gosh, this is wonderful. We're looking out onto the, whatever the ocean is where I always think of JFK, 
but whatever that area it's just so beautiful so i was like wow i'm so lucky <laughs> this is what she was saying right she's rocking there and she's like it is a wonderful world and i am so blessed. it's a wonderful world not life this is incredible <laughs> um but you felt that way about your life too and you can imagine me i'm in my rocking chair looking at her like i and this has been a theme right <laughs> gosh linda for you to be able to say that and you just really genuinely have this this appreciation, this just authentic gratitude for everything in your life. And you stay in this place, even when you, I mean, when you don't feel good and you haven't felt good for years right. and, and your heart is beating at a 17% capacity and you're just like, you, there, there were a lot of issues that you had, you know, and, and a lot of like fear uh, of, of the future. And would you like, you always lived with what's going to happen to Blake? If, if I die, right. what's going to happen to Blake? And like just all of this together, but through it all, here you are sitting on a rocking chair and going, listen to this song. It's so true. It just is. And your, your mindset has always been so incredible. And I kind of, I really wanted you to share your story because I want to share you and who you are and your, your whole persona and your strength and resilience with everyone through your story. Because I have always been in awe of that, of that incredible mindset of just, just the, the sheer innate courage. It's just to, to, to face everything that's coming, you know, all these roadblocks one after the other. And you just, you just face them with a smile on your face. Right. Well, so, I mean, that was probably just the beginning of struggles. Really, because life gets worse. Beginning, beginning of the struggles. Yeah, it was. I mean, who knew? I thought I was on easy street from then on. Well, that was before the transplant, and you were going into the first transplant. Right. There. Oh, right, right, right. I, yeah, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't understand what transplantation yeah. was. Now I'm an expert. If anybody has any questions. Yeah. So, well, now you're a go red woman. Well, yeah. Yeah, there's been so much that's happened. Right. So yeah, that was kind of a fun experience. Yeah. So let's go. So you had your transplant. My first transplant. Yeah. You're yeah. home and your boys are, your Blake is living across the street and the boys are a little bit scattered going here and there. Right. Um, so anyway, we just, that's, we had 10 years. We had 10 years. Yeah, yeah. So in those 10 years, I mean, I did a lot of fun things. We traveled a lot as a yeah. family. So we do take the kids everywhere. We went on a big Hawaii trip, which, you know, just, it was a lot of fun. And I really am glad that we had all of that together. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and like the whole go red thing that just came about. I was walking in the mall one day and I saw all this uh, American Heart Association and I thought, wow, I wonder what that is. And that sounded interesting to me, of course. So I walked over there and they just asked, you know, well, what, what's your relation to heart disease? So I just told them about my transplant and they were all kind of stunned. They weren't expecting that for somebody to walk up and talk to about to them about. So anyway, they interviewed me there and I didn't know they were out in a, the cities around the United States looking for candidates. So they called me back and said, we'd like you to join our team of Go Red for Women and to spread the word about heart disease mm -hmm. and what you can do to help. Mm -hmm. So I said, oh, that sounds like fun. <laughs> so sure, I'll do it. So that was fun. You know, we got to travel all around and talk to people, got to ring the opening bell. And of course, Scarlett was there with me. Yes. So, because she's right near New York. Yeah. So that was her first trip into my traveling mm -hmm. and speaking. Right. And now I've gone with her so many times right. to do so her, her journey of choose love. Yeah. All the way to India. Right. <laughs> that was amazing. Yeah. So what else did we do? Gosh, that whole time. Um, you know, just me taking care of the boys um, and then working, working volunteering for the American Heart Association, working. And the Georgia Transplant Foundation. I worked there every week. Um, and then his, my husband's mother moved in with us. So I was taking care of his mom and then my son and Russell's son. And with my heart, you know, I think it was it was not doing so as well as I thought. You know, for 10 years, I really didn't have any problems. And then I just had taken on so much stress because I'm a can-do. And, and it just wore out on me. And I ended up having a heart attack one night and actually three nights in a row. And with a heart transplant, you don't know you're having a heart attack because they disconnect all the artery, all of the nerves around your heart. So you can't feel it. You no, I couldn't pain. feel it. I didn't have any pain uh -huh. at all. And so, I mean, 
because I, I, I don't have any nerves connected. So I just, you know, didn't know what was going on. I felt pressure. So I woke up and I thought, oh, something doesn't feel right. And I took my blood pressure and my heart rate and everything looked normal. I thought, well, it just must be stress because I was thinking that's what it is. So I just oh, I called my doctor the next day and they said, well, we'll just look at you at the end of the week when you're coming in. I'm like, are you sure? And so I did. I just waited. And then that same the next night, had the same thing happened. I woke up. Suddenly something woke me up and everything looked normal. But I had the pressure in my chest, you know, in my, my whole left arm. And I know all these symptoms because I preach about them, you know, in the uh, American Heart Association. Anyway, so that went on for two or three nights, and they kept telling me to wait. Finally, um, I looked at Russell. I'm like, I need to go to the ER. This something doesn't feel right. So he took me to the ER, and the next morning, when they when I got there, they said that. Um, well, first of all, I mean, I looked fine. I was walking around and talking, and you know, I just did everything that I would normally do, except when they took a test to see what was going on and why I was having this pressure. They could see that. My main artery, which is your LAD valve, was 100% blocked. And as everybody always says, that's the widow maker, because if that's blocked, you don't get blood flow anywhere. But because I'd had my heart transplant for so long, I guess we're all assuming that um, I had developed other blood paths, blood like veins or arteries. I don't know what I developed. Something, but it was, your heart compensates. Right. Sometimes. Right. My body did. It kind of took over and developed pathways for my blood to get through since it couldn't get through the normal pass. Incredible. Of my heart. Yeah. I know. That is very incredible. Yeah. So they immediately went in and took out the clot. And, you know, it didn't take that long, but it was a pretty big procedure. And I remember the the cardiologist who did it, because you're wide awake when they're doing this. So I'm Are they going through a vein? Yeah, they go through your groin. Okay. Yeah. That seems like the long path to get to your heart. It is, but it's a straight shot. Okay. So it's better than going weaving. Okay. But I'm laying on the bed when they took the clot out, and the cardiologist, and I'm looking right at him, he pulls it out and holds up the blockage or the clot and shows all of the interns around the, the whole area saying he'd never seen a clot that big. And I'm laying there thinking, seriously? I don't need to know this. Right. Just finish, right. you know, sew me up. Let's go. Um, but it was fascinating because it was really a big deal. I guess I'd been working on it for a while. <laughs> working on it. So, I mean, I just stayed in the hospital for a few days. You have to let the leg heal because, you know, it's a mm. pretty big hole that they pulled the blood clot out. Right. And they pull it out. They don't just disintegrate it because they want to travel. So anyway, I thought, well, this is it. I, I fixed it. Now I can just not worry about this again since I felt so good before. But that wasn't the case. So for the next year, and nobody would really tell me what happened. I don't know why still. I guess they don't want you to be depressed. But I said, I want to know what's going on. And then for the next whole year, I felt terrible. I Do you mean, think they knew that you were moving yeah. towards needing another transplant? Yes. Yeah. And I would ask, do I have to get another transplant? And nobody would answer me because they were hoping for a miracle, I like to think. I yeah. don't know. They knew. So then a year later, I asked. I'm like, okay, are we ready to get a new transplant? And they're like, yep, we got to go back in. Okay. So this time was not as easy because COVID had just started. Oh, right. Yeah, it was not. So you couldn't have any visitors. So now you're you're in the hospital. You're tethered to your bed. Yes. You really can't literally. go outside your room. Literally, by a, a big tube in your neck. Right. And they're so like, don't. Don't move that tube because that's directly attached to your heart. Yes. It was making my heart beat because it really stopped. It was just so weak. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't even get up and go to the bathroom. So I just sat there with my neck tethered to my heart, to this machine, which was making it pump. So I felt pretty good lying there just because the machine was doing all the work. So I know. And I always think of that whole time in there. I actually was in the hospital for six months waiting in COVID. six months in COVID. So that means, and I remember talking to you on the phone and that means that Russ, you would call Russ because he couldn't visit. No, nope. couldn't visit. Nobody could. Nobody could visit. So you would call and you'd say, can you please bring my knitting? Can you please bring more paint supplies? You know, and he would drop them off downstairs and yeah. they would bring them up to you. I mean, my gosh, Linda. Yeah. The nurse would go down and pick them up. And then I even had like my, my nephews who now live in Pennsylvania they would drive all the way down, make these huge billboards down on the sidewalk and hold it up. And I'd look up my window and wave. 
it was funny. And Blake would do it. Blake got a whole sheet and um, he drew on the sheet. It was huge. And it was on my birthday and I still have the sheet. Uh, and it says, happy birthday, mom. Uh, yeah. So and he would hold that up. Uh, and they'd all be down there waving. And I'd be in my room, like, look up at the window. And I'd wave. Incredible. Yeah. And, you know, I would call and I would say, hey, Linda, how's it? How, what's going on? And you'd go, well, I'm fine. I'm just sitting here. I I am. Um, you had this little um, wheel thing that you would a, a stationary bike, a station, but not. But it wasn't the bike, was it? Wasn't it just no, the pedals? Okay, so you would sit on the. I'm just doing my bike, and it's like I would. It's there was always like this kind of ethereal type. Um, I'm okay. I'm good. You know, well, I I'm, felt good, which was amazing because I hadn't felt good for so long. So you don't know how bad you felt until yeah. you feel better. Right. So I'm like, well, I feel fine. Yeah. And I completely trusted the doctors and the system um, to find me a heart eventually, which that's not a guarantee, by the way. Sign up to be an organ donor. Mm. So, right. Um, yes. So, I mean, I just, I felt fine. I would have a routine every day. I would get up since, I mean, it was just me that I couldn't talk. Well, I could talk to people, but I couldn't see anybody. I saw the nurses and the doctors, but that's all. Yeah, that's all. And I really couldn't eat for six months. Yeah. It's like solitary confinement. Yeah. With no salt, no sugar, no nothing good. I just, <laughs> I just ate like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich every day. That was it. But, um, oh, I know the biggest thing, which I need to continue. I had Russell bring up my keyboard that I've always wanted to know how to play the piano. And he brought it up and I set it down next to my bike and I would practice every day. I'm very compliant. I would set up a time every day from one to three to practice my piano. officer, so. <laughs> well, and um, I did, I had to teach myself to read music first and that was hard because my brain probably wasn't getting Did you teach yourself? Yes. Wow. I know. I've For always wanted time. to do that. But you know how to play the piano. No, I don't. I've taken years of lessons, but oh, you're way ahead of me. No, no, I'm not. Not in playing, though. Well, so my goal was to play a Christmas song by Christmas. This was probably I went into the hospital in June, so I practiced every day. And the nurse was be out there, you know, applauding for my jingle bells, jingle bells. <laughs> it was nothing fancy, but so I did that. So I, I had every day in the mornings I would do paperwork. I still had, I was managing all of the bills and everything from home on my computer and answer emails. And then I, you know, have lunch and I had the day blocked off and just uh, at night I would be in bed every night by whatever time. So I had little stations. I could get up and go like next to my bed or in the chair or in the bed or out in the, I could actually walk out into the walkway by the windows. That's where visitors would come on a regular day. But I would go out there and because I could pull my my whatever IV tower with me. Amazing. So then eventually six months later. So six months later in November, actually, um, they gave me, they called and said, we have a heart for you. Mm. And I was so thrilled. Oh, and this is amazing part. I was in, this is like, actually it was in October 26th. And it was the first time that they allowed Russell to come up and see me in my room. I don't know why. I guess they were lightening up on the COVID restrictions. Well, also probably you were going in for surgery. No, and... no, no. Oh, okay. I didn't okay. know about any of that. Oh, okay. okay. But while I was, while he came in, he brought um, dinner, some Thai food, which I probably wasn't supposed to have. But so we were sitting there having our Thai dinner and the phone rang. And that's when it was the nurse saying, we have a heart for you. Amazing. And I'm like, he was sitting right there. Yeah, that's incredible. Right there. Yeah. And I hadn't seen him wow. in six months. I mean, it was crazy. Wow. So I was so excited and I was so happy. And Russell was the complete opposite. He was so nervous. He was like, oh my gosh, are you okay to do this? I'm like, well, it's too late now. So yeah, he was worried and he was like, you know, upset. And I was like walking around going, Whoop! we're going and I was like and I ran I didn't run anywhere I yelled the door to the nurse's station and told them of course they already knew but um it's always a always but the first time I remembered once they say you have a heart it takes a while because they have to fly the heart to you you know they have to test it and just make sure that it's going to be a match before they go through that whole procedure mm -hmm. so it's it's a big deal it's a big and it's deal. always at night you know, so they come in and get me and they say, you know, we're ready. You have to shower. 
which that's the other thing. I couldn't shower for six months because I couldn't risk getting water in my neck that would go to my heart that would cause an infection. So that was tough. But I actually talked the nurses into washing my hair mm. somehow. And I would just get bird baths for every day. Mm. So that was weird, taking another shower when I got out. Mm. As odd as that sounds. But I went in and I was just as happy and calm as you could. I mean, I can't even imagine being that calm. But I was. Always, I was like, she always wave is. to all the nurses yeah. like, I'm going, I'll be back. Yeah, I'll be back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what I was thinking? And I always thought this. I'm like, well, you know what? This is perfect. It's a win-win for me because I'll either, you know, get my heart and everything will be okay and I'll go home and I'll help heal myself. I said, or if I don't get the heart or it doesn't work, I guess I'm really going home. So <laughs> my ultimate home. Right. Yeah. I'm like, and I was fine with either way. Yeah. And that's that's and I really was. I mean, inside, I was like, this will be okay. And Russell, I could just tell he was like, he was probably crying. I don't know. Yeah. So your your faith was you know what really moved you through and it's yeah. like because there was really nothing to fear Not either way with either outcome no so yeah so then you 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 got your transplant and i just want to go back a little bit because i remember you meeting you know every time somebody gets a heart somebody loses a heart and oh. so you know the first the yeah. i remember you meeting the first family of your first donor and it was a teenage girl that had gotten into an accident and uh you went and visited her family so yes. they could meet you and i remember when you walked in there was uh did you bring the tel the uh, stethoscope or yeah. did somebody oh else no i it? didn't bring it they had it. they had the stethoscope so they could hear the daughter's heart yes it's amazing it's beautiful it was yeah and, and you know they really like felt her and did and didn't you have something where you liked something that you didn't like, you know, and she did or yeah, she was she was only 15 mm -hmm. and she was just or maybe 16, but she was just getting her driver's license. And her dad told me that while they were standing there in the driver's license, she was insistent on being an organ donor. And and he was like, No, you don't have to decide that now. You can decide that later on, you know, with your family. But she had recently met with her neighbor who had um received an organ and so they had a long conversation fairly close to that time period and that's when she decided that's exactly what she wanted to do so that was you know my gift yeah and, and of course nobody knew that at the time but right that decision really right was like and not to not to uh in advance of when she actually died no. and gave the heart yeah not at all so it was just a a, a freak accident so um you know, of course, nobody was expecting this, but she, it was right here in Atlanta. So she was just down the street in a different hospital. Mm. So, and it was a perfect match. And, and, and it served you so well for yes, so long. For 20 years. I think I keep saying 10. Yeah. But I met the family after 10 years because I'd, I'd written them letters every, every year. year. Yeah. For 10 years, I had written them letters on the anniversary of my heart and they'd never responded. And I thought, wow, maybe it's just too hard. And finally one year they did respond but before i could even get the letter a friend of mine who was in my painting class um told me about well he was actually getting his hair cut at the local barber and the lady that was cutting his hair was talking about this woman who had been writing letters to them every year and and he was just it, it perked his ears up because he knew me and he knew my story and so he was listening and she just said that this woman was writing these long letters all about her, her nephews and her kids and what she was going, what was going all the on. great things she was doing with the heart and how appreciate, yeah. appreciative you were, how grateful you were for your heart. Yeah. That was their loss, but you know, your gain yes. and that you were so appreciating it every day. Yeah. So she really looked, they all looked forward to the letters every and it's like, like the girl's dad would take it into his study and spend all day with it. Yeah. And so that really meant a lot to them. And I never knew that because nobody ever responded. But um, the, my friend who was getting his hair cut stopped and said, I know who you're talking about. Would you like to meet the woman that has your daughter's heart? I mean, I guess I'm sure that would just floor you. And he did. I mean, he called me and I couldn't believe what he was saying yeah. because it was so true. I mean, I could tell. And so he set up a meeting for us and we went over to their house and met 
the father and the two sisters, not the mother because they weren't living together. But I mean, it was just amazing. And she was, she was, I think she would have been a lot like me or I would have been a lot like her at her age, you know, and she was a very strong Christian. And, you know, I think they felt good that she had given her heart to somebody who like me, who would be a lot like her. So that's why they said they hadn't replied to my letters just because they were afraid of what they would find, you know, mm. they wanted to make sure mm. that whoever had it appreciated it. Oh boy. And they know, they knew oh. from the beginning, the first anniversary, cause you wrote every single year. Yeah. And I still do. I still write to them every year that. now. Yeah. yeah. And just let them know how I'm doing. They do know that I got another heart Yeah, just because of Facebook. Yeah. But um, I wasn't going to say anything, but I guess once they know, they know. And I and they said that it was okay. They kind of gave me permission. Good because I don't have a choice. Yeah, 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 yeah. But her heart served me for twenty years. Yes, it did. Amazing, yes. amazing. And now you have somebody else's heart. Yes. And this one is a young man. Okay. Who's a teenager? And I've spoken to the mother, but we haven't met yet. She's in a different state, and so it it takes a long time to connect. You have to like trade letters okay everything mm -hmm. sign off mm -hmm. through the through the transplant foundation well yeah through lifelink actually yeah, yeah. Okay. who's the procurement office that gets the donor and the recipient together okay so thank okay. you all that technical stuff well it's incredible and then six months after your heart transplant something else happened oh yeah oh my gosh this is this is not easy blake struggled with anxiety and depression for a long time and I think he got that from his dad. Who knows what genetics, our genetics are not good. But, um, you know, with the first transplant, he knew I had heart failure when I delivered him. So I think he carried all of this with him, which of course was not his fault. But um, and, and as time went on, he learned coping skills to cope with the anxiety and depression through medication. They started medicating him when he was in, um, you know, like junior high for ADHD, for depression, for whatever they could think of that would help him change behaviors so that he would feel better. Well, he got used to taking medication to feel better. And you say he was always sensitive since Oh, he was always, yeah, always very a sensitive. very sensitive person. Yeah, and it, it's hard to have your mom, you know, going through these surgeries and you have to leave and um, very scary. I can't even imagine. Scary yeah. being your friend. Yeah. Can't imagine being your son. Yeah. And Blake and I were super close. Like we could almost feel each other's thoughts. So well, because it was just you and right, him. Right. It didn't, it, there wasn't anybody else really. Right. Other than friends, which was fine. And then that's what kind of why I brought the boys in thinking Blake will have somebody else to rely on. Yeah. But you know, it didn't happen because once you start taking medication to cope, I mean, that's what he learned. So he started taking drugs to medicate and it just got, you know, we out of hand. He went to so many treatment centers, and poor Scarlett tried to help and talk to him all the time. He loved Scarlett. I loved him. He was actually wanting. He was an ambassador for a while. Yes, he was for Choose love, love in Georgia. Yeah, and I loved him. You know, I knew him his whole life. Yes, but you know what? He just he wanted the drugs to feel better, and you can't do that. I mean, you have to learn how to take care of your own issues somehow positively your own pain yeah he's in a lot of pain he was and it's so hard as a parent to watch that because i could see he was struggling but there wasn't anything i could do i mean we did everything humanly possible to try and help him but he it has to come from him and this is something else that you struggled with i mean you're telling your story of oh. the two heart transplants but you you were also struggling with this as well with blake yes and you know what i used to always think and i told my cardiologist this I'm like, these heart transplants are nothing compared to helping my son deal with addiction mm. because my cardiologist had his nephew go through the same exact process. So he was very understanding and called me and tried to talk to me about how, you know, this is how a lot, some people, you know, have this struggle in life and they have to figure it out or they don't. And they usually don't, which is sad. I'm not typically a negative person, but I mean, it, it ended up taking Blake's life. You know, six months after your second after I got out of the hospital and I really was not feeling well. I mean, just because this was a second transplant and your body does not do as well. And I'm older and, and Blake was helping me a lot. He would walk me every day in our cul-de-sacs, you know, and hold me up because I couldn't really walk very well and just carry things for me. He would pick me up and take me into the bathroom because he's strong. And my husband was like busy working. 
So, I mean, it was just hard. And and he would go away. And I guess I thought he was doing okay, but you just don't know what's in somebody's mind. He'd been in and out of rehab so many times. And he was living in a halfway house, right? Well, yeah, in an apartment with a bunch of other guys that were in recovery. That were sober. Yeah, yeah. they were all sober. But, I mean, that's that's not helping if you're intent on getting high, I guess. So... So uh, that was, that, that's absolutely the worst thing ever. Yeah. So you called me and told me where you were by Blake's bedside after an accidental overdose. Mm-hmm. And uh, you came out. I did, of course. Um, I flew down mm-hmm. and we all just stood by him. He He went in. It wasn't a coma. He was just gone, really. But they kept him alive because he wanted to be an organ donor. And we, of course, talked about that all the time. And he looked perfectly fine. Well, well, he looked like Blake. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah. And so, I mean, he they were able to use his organs to save three lives, which... You know, is amazing, and it's supposed to make you feel better. But honestly, it didn't. I shouldn't say that as an organ recipient. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's hard. It's just so hard. And I remember um, they kept him alive for a couple of days because they were trying to regulate the balance of sodium and different things for the transplant. Right. And so we were um, obviously with him, talking to him, and Garrett was there, yeah, holding his hand. I'll never forget. I, I have pictures of. Garrett just sitting there next to his brother's bed, holding his hand. Um, and then I think it was two o'clock in the morning where they did the hero, the, the hero walk. Yes. The hero walk where um, everybody in the hospital, uh, the aisles up of the hospital, the up and down the aisles. And they wheel this donor, uh, donor, this human being that's going to donate his organs and save other people's lives. That's why they call it the, is it the hero walk? walk? Yes. And, uh, and so walking with him, Blake first, and then the family behind through a hallway of doctors honoring this really yeah, everybody and the doctors and the nurses, this was in the, in the middle staff, of the night. So it was in the middle of the night. There, but there, were, there were, there were a lot of people and uh, walking him down. And then I remember he goes into the elevator and the doors close and that's it. And he's going someplace else to donate his organs. Right. A procurement center. Okay. Yeah. And then Blake's funeral. Yeah. I mean, you know what? As a mom, I think you don't block it out, but that's a memory you do not want to go through all the time. But yeah, it was all like a blur just going through all of that. But yeah, and uh, that was that was really tough. But I do remember you saying, uh, and I feel this way about Jesse too, that you know you spent decades worrying about him, mm-hmm. and now you never had to worry about him again, right? Because you know, as a Christian, you know that he's you know with Jesus and in heaven, yes. and and that's it. And um, and so you felt somewhat relief. And I remember feeling kind <laughs> about Jesse too. Like Jesse died at six years old, but I know exactly where he is and I don't have to worry about him. I don't have to worry about him. Like every parent worries about their child now going to school and whether they're right. going to be safe and come home and uh, the substance abuse and the depression and the mental wellness and all of that. I don't have to worry because, you know, Jesse is, uh, is, 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 is okay now and never will have to face those things. Yeah. And Blake too. And because he struggled with his disease for so long, we had many, many conversations about what happens with addiction. You know, many people die and we would say, well, what do you want in your death? You know, where do you want to go? And he was a strong Christian. So we both knew where he was going, but um, you know, he was, we were just very vocal about it. He knew he wanted to be an organ donor. So there were just some things that we had already resolved between us. Sadly enough, you don't want to talk Well, you to have those talks kids. though, right? When yeah. you were an organ donor yourself and yeah. Well, and, and I'm very direct. So I would just ask him, yeah. I'd be like, Blake, do you believe in Jesus? <laughs> he would say, yes, mom. I'd be like, okay, but you got to really feel it because uh, both of us, we could go either day. And he knew I would. And I was saying this more for my 
or see my death than his. But, you know, it's just important to have those conversations with people. Well, you know what? There was one more issue with Garrett. Oh, gosh. That's right. Yeah. After Blake passed away, like six months after he passed, my husband, who, of course, was Garrett's father, he went to his home and found Garrett uh, dead in his bed. I mean, how does that happen? And Garrett had spina bifida, so we knew there were issues. And he'd been having headaches, but the doctor said everything was fine. And Russell went over there to take him to the dentist one day, and he was gone. I mean, I couldn't believe it. It was... This was about six months after... Exactly. Blake's death. Yes. Yeah. And so, I feel like he died of a broken heart. He did. Because he was he missed Blake so much. He never did go back to normal, his actions. He was a, a teacher. He was a full-time teacher in middle school or high school. And he was just so sad all the time. And we were all three going to grief counseling. But he just, he would just break down. I mean, he couldn't really accept it, even though he knew Blake and his struggles. But Garrett always thought he could save him. And, and of course, Blake spent his entire last day with Garrett mm. at his house, mm. hooking up all of the uh, technology. Yeah, the games the boys were playing. Mm -hmm. But Garrett had a big tattoo of Blake's thumbnail, thumbprint, I mean, thumbprint. on his, yeah, so beautiful. I mean, he just loved him so much. And I will never forget him sitting by Blake's bed, holding hands. I mean, their bond was so close. And of course, we know that they're together now. Yes. So Russell, Garrett's dad, and myself, you know, we're going through the grieving process together, which is another God thing. I mean, how impossible is that to have a spouse to walk through the worst moment of your life and they know exactly what you're going through? Right. So, right. Yeah, it's very amazing. I mean, it's just, it's hard to do that by yourself and especially in a marriage because you tend to blame each other. But we couldn't blame each other on this because we knew both of us did everything for our boys. Yes. So we just, we just knew. Yeah. And, and we're both strong Christians. So we know where they are and we're going to go be with them. So, yes. Yeah. Not, hopefully not too soon. Oh, yeah. Not soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, whatever. Not soon in our terms. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, just so incredible that um, your story is so incredible. And, and you know, it's 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 perspective giving, too. It's like we all go through stuff, but to hear about the things, the struggles that you've had and the fact that you can get through those struggles, whatever they are, mm -hmm. with a positive mindset, with a growth mindset, I call it a choose love mindset, to just just be okay, you know, not suffer. Uh, you know, there's this saying, um, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Right. And you really bring that to life because you've been through a lot of pain, but you do not suffer. Okay. You know, you, you've, you've had pain, um, but really, you know, you, you are able and, and it's through, you know, the, the things that now I say are the choose love formula to really kind of mm -hmm. move through. And, you know, even now, now I'm visiting you and, mm -hmm. um, and now you, Russell, and I go out to dinner and it's like the three of us have lost boys and it's such mm -hmm. an incredible thing to be able to be with you. And it's, it's a huge bond and um, you guys are such a blessing to me. You always have been. Wow. Um, and Scarlett has always been my best friend since we met. So it's a little upsetting to me now that she I have to share her with the whole world. <laughs> I know I've told you that before, but now she's like out there in the world and and everybody gets to see how special it is. Mm -hmm. I've always called you uh, like angelic. So mm, you're my angel. You're my angel. <laughs> I love you so much. Thank you so much for sharing your story with the Choose Love community so that they can just be as in awe of you as I am. And but just just it's not uh, me, it's her. just just have share in all the gifts that you give every single day. You're amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Love you so much. And we Namaste. love it. Yeah. We love you all as well. Thank you for listening and thank you for bringing the lessons to your own life and for helping to share the message. That's how we share. Choose love. It's really by word of mouth and telling other people living it mm -hmm. so that other people see it and then spreading the message. So thanks so much for doing that. We are in this together. We know that love unites and fear divides and we choose love. Thank you. Thank you. Mwah. It's all part of us. 
We can all choose love. It'll lift you up if you let it in. Let the healing.